I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 7. Here we find yet another Psalm of David, uh, where David, if you recall, in our ser- uh, when we looked at Psalm 6 last month, uh, asked for the Lord to care for him according to the Lord's own righteousness. And now David makes a rather curious statement where he now asks the Lord to judge and to vindicate him according to his own righteousness. I think it's a very difficult passage I think we need to walk through in order to understand uh, that we might uh, grow in the things the Lord calls us uh, to do. Here is Psalm chapter 7. A Shigeon of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. O Lord, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest, like a lion, they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil, if I have plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness, and according to the integrity that is within me. But let the evil of the wicked come to an end. May you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and the hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil. The wicked man is pregnant with mischief, and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give thanks to the Lord, the thanks that is due to His righteousness. Now I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, as we uh, wrestle with this uh, song that you have given to your church under full inspiration of the Spirit, we pray that you would open our minds that we might understand these very words that we pray and that we sing, uh, that in doing so we would give glory to our great God who reigns on high. We ask these things in Christ's name. 
Amen. Well, how do you respond to slander? I think all of us have been the victims of slander at one point or another. Be it bald-faced lies or half-truths, the malicious whispers that instill doubt. When you have gone through every legal channel available at your disposal, and still there is no vindication, still uh, your name has been dragged through the mud, what do you do? Here we find, I think, a great encouragement as David himself underwent these same trials. His prayer reminds us that in the midst of affliction, integrity matters, and that vengeance is the Lord's. I'd like us to consider this passage in three distinct parts. First, we'll consider the matter of David's innocence in verses 1 to 5. Then we'll consider the matter of judgment in verses 6 to 11, and then vindication leading to praise in verses 12 to 17. So innocence, judgment, and vindication. The superscript here at the top of the psalm uh, is a rather curious one. It says it is a song uh, with a historical referent. It regards David's interactions and his song and prayer to the Lord concerning the actions of Cush, the Benjaminite. Of course, as we're probably kind of rattling through the Rolodex of our memories, trying to remember what is it that Cush has done, and now you're perhaps feeling slightly awkward going, I don't remember the story of Cush in the Old Testament. Well, you're in good hands, because... The Bible doesn't tell us about this particular incident. Uh, This particular character is only referenced one time in the Bible, and it is right here in Psalm chapter 7. We don't know the specifics of the matter, but we do know that whatever it is caused David to write this song that the Holy Spirit himself inspired. Uh, What I do think is curious, however, is that it is referenced by the fact that Cush is a Benjaminite. Saul was a Benjaminite. One of the things that we notice in First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, even the structure to Judges, or even that of Ruth, is that there seems to be this continued conflict between the people of Judah and the people of the tribe of Benjamin. I mean, imagine what it would be like to be one of uh, Saul's cousins. You're not next in line to the throne, but perhaps you take great pride in the fact that Saul has ascended the throne as Israel's king, and now the run of Judah has taken his place. How do you think that would make you kind of feel? There seems to be perhaps one of the things that we see elsewhere, at least for other Benjaminites, is an indignation against David, who they perhaps had seen as one who has stolen the throne. And we don't know if this is the the exact nature of Benjamin, but I think it is possibly a historical guess. If you notice in verse 4, David makes reference to the fact that his enemies have accused him of thievery. And it's not just malicious whispers. Cush has led a faction that is acting like a lion on the prowl seeking to destroy David's life. 
Whatever the reason for Benjamin, or, uh, Cush's actions, it is clear we see here that David has done nothing wrong to provoke it. Whatever the cause for Cush's mutiny against his king, he is not merely described as one uh, disgruntled, kind of simply grumbling under his breath. He is compared to the lion on the prowl, seeking whom he may devour. And here's David knows that the whispers are taking place in the kingdom, know that there is a faction that has risen against him that seeks to destroy his life. To whom does David turn? You know, for us, you know, if, uh, if, if there is a neighbor of ours and there was a property dispute uh, and you didn't, uh, and, and, the per, and, and your neighbor gets more and more violent, what do you do? You call the cops. You call those in authority. But what do you do when you're at the top of the authority chain? David, David's at the top of the kingdom. He has no recourse for action. By earthly standards, David is the final court of appeal. What's interesting is David does not take this matter into his own hands. He does not sit there and abuse his office to try to reckon with Cush whatever the cause or whatever the reason is that Cush has led this mutiny against David. Rather, what is it that the, that, uh, the king of Israel does? He goes to the ultimate authority. He goes to the Lord in prayer. O oh Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all of my pursuers and deliver me. Here's the king registering his complaint before the heavenly courts. Here's the king of Israel saying, I have been slandered. And the slander has incited a mutiny. And so judge, O Lord. And yet what is striking is who it is that David asks for the Lord to judge. David does not begin by saying, judge them. He begins by saying, judge me verses 3 and 4. If I have done this, this very thing that I've been accused of, again, we don't know the nature of the accusation. If there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil, if I have plundered my enemy without cause, here is what amounts to a solemn oath. This is kind of the ancient Hebrew version of, uh, you know, I solemnly swear on my mother's grave. Something to that effect. If I have done this, then do this, Lord. This is how um, uh, it's, it's, an, it's an idiom for a solemn vow, a solemn plea. David says, if I am guilty, strike me down. Consider the depth of David's integrity here. Notice what it is that he's saying. I think we all recognize the wickedness that would involve mistreating a friend, turning on one of our close friends. And David says, if I've done that, please. Uh, let them have me. But David goes even further. Notice how David has even treated his enemies. David says, if I've plundered my enemies without cause. Right, David is not a man who is using his office to provoke enemy rivals without reason. David says, in essence, I have treated justly my friends and my foes. 
If I deserve wrong, you, O Lord, are the judge. Let them have me. Let them destroy my life. Don't simply have them drag my name through the mud. May they lay my glory in the dust. In other words, what David is doing here is he's standing before the heavenly tribunal, and he is pleading before the courts, not guilty. John Calvin, in commenting on this passage, he puts it like this. He says, here is an example that all the godly who are slandered should follow, that they may rest satisfied with the judgment of God alone. We talk about who is it that we please. Each and every one of us are called to serve an audience of one. And at the end of the day, it is the Lord's opinion of us that matters, and not anyone else's. We are called to do what is right, no matter what the consequences may be, even to our own good name and reputation. Having sought all other earthly remedies and being found wanting, David turns to the highest court of all, the court of heaven itself. And yet, in turning to God for help, Calvin says this, reminding us that we must first be well assured in our own consciences that our cause is righteous. For we err if we seek to engage the Lord as our advocate and defender when we ourselves are in the wrong. David's not trying to use the Lord as an excuse to execute uh, his uh, uh, dirty deeds. David says, my, my cause here in this particular matter is righteous. You know, there's an old Bob Dylan song, um, With God on Our Side. Uh, Bob Dylan kind of recounts uh, America's history uh, from the vantage point of the nation trying to justify particular wars in the name of God. And as the song progresses, you come to realize the, the sheer hypocrisy in some of these you know, assuming uh, Dylan's vantage point. Is, is David doing something like this here? Is David simply invoking God's name, uh, even though David himself has kind of um, fudged the record a little bit? No, David says, examine me. Test my heart, oh God. I've, I've done no wrong in this matter. You're the holy and righteous judge. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? You know, as Reformed folk, I think we're comfortable um, and are used to speaking of going before the Lord to confess our sins and to seek pardon. But Scripture encourages us not only to go before the Lord in those matters, which we need that quite a bit. Here we find another facet to the sure salvation we have in Christ. That God is the one whom we can approach to vindicate us when we have been sinned against. And by vindication, at the very least, I mean the Lord saying, you have done no wrong. But here we must remember this. God shows no partiality. So we better examine our own hearts before invoking such a prayer as this. 
So as the innocent party stands before the holy courts and he lodges his complaint, he pleads for the judge to execute a righteous judgment in this particular matter. You see this beginning in verse 6 where he says, Arise, O Lord, will not the judge of all the earth do justly? Over and over we're told that the Lord loves righteousness. He hates evil. Slander is an abomination to the Lord. And the people here have slandered the Lord's Messiah, the King of Israel. And yet the language, I think, here is evocative. David says here, Arise, O Lord, and then return to your people. What does he mean here? If you look at Numbers chapter 10, we won't turn there this evening, Verses 35 and 36 were given a particular instance in uh, Israel's life in the wilderness that exemplifies what Israel would do when they had to go to battle against their foe. When they went to war, the priest would lead the army in the vanguard by bringing the Ark of the Covenant out front to depict this, that the Lord himself is a divine warrior who leads the armies in battle, and as the divine, or as the ark was led forth into the midst of battle, Moses himself would pray this, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. And at the end of the battle, the people would flock around the ark, and Moses would pray once again, Return, O Lord, to your people's. And you notice that this is the content of the prayer in these verses. David prays the prayer of a man going to war in the midst of battle. Arise, O Lord, let your anger triumph over the wrath of my enemies. Enter into conflict and judgment with them. The Lord's judgment is seen as a divine battle. And when the thing has ended, return to your people's. Here we see divine judgment as an act of warfare. The Lord comes to execute judgment against the nations on the battlefield of history. He goes forth as the divine warrior and judges all the peoples, righteous and wicked alike. Remember, David's first plea is what? Judge me, O God, before he ever prays for judgment to fall upon his foes. What is it that Peter says to the exiles in 1 Peter 4? Judgment must first begin at the house of God. Jesus himself says, before you start looking at the speck in your brother's eye, you got to get the log out of your own eye first. It's a call for self-reflection, self-examination. This is not the prayer of a man who does not recognize his own sin and is calling fire from heaven to fall upon everyone else. Verse 8, judge me, O Lord. And then verse 9, then judge the wicked as well. Test and probe the mind and the hearts, quite literally the mind and the kidneys of all. The deepest affections of the people to evaluate their integrity and the strength of their heart. Bring the wickedness of men to an end, but establish the righteous man. And so he prays here, judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness. David is not applying this prayer to the whole course of his life. 
How could he? We know what David's life was like. We even saw in Psalm 6, David recognizes areas in which he has sinned, where he says, he says, Lord, deliver me out of your steadfast love and mercy. But here he says, deliver me, O Lord, because my cause is a righteous one here. David is sincerely asking for the Lord to examine his heart and to judge him according to his character in this particular matter. It's a frightening prayer when you think about it. If we look at our hearts, I think if we were honest, how many of us could ever pray this prayer? Nine times out of ten. And yet, I think common experience reminds us that there are particular situations where we have been wronged, fully and severely, and we're given great confidence to know that the Lord is one to whom we can turn to rectify the situation, however he may do so. This isn't a legal fiction. This is not something that we can simply sweep under the bed. We can't simply say, well, that was just the Old Testament. This is the New Testament. We find that this particular psalm is echoed in Revelation, where Christ, having risen on high and ascended to the right hand of the majesty, now comes in a warning of divine judgment against the church of Thyatira. Hear the words of Christ. He says, I'm coming in judgment against the sexually immoral and the idolaters within the church so that all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will render to each of you according to your works. Here Christ himself gives a warning to the church a particular church that lacks integrity. Integrity matters. Holiness matters. This, this reminds us quite vividly that salvation is not given as mere fire insurance. Uh, how many of us in times past have treated salvation as some type of lucky rabbit's foot? Um, the equivalent of, uh, well, it's always easier to ask forgiveness than permission, so it doesn't matter what my character is like. I will continue living however I so well please. Treat it as a license to do whatever we want, a get-out-of-hell-free card. And sure enough, the Lord's mercy is kind but it is not a license for continued sin. Integrity matters. This is the thrust that we find in the New Testament. Christ has established a new and better covenant that He might give us His Spirit, that He might declare us to be righteous. It's justification. But also that He might make us righteous. And sanctification. It's not simply that you know, the Lord has put some type of you know, cardboard cut out of Jesus in front of you and says, all right, you're righteous, now I can pretend like the rest of what you're doing behind the cardboard cutout doesn't exist. But the Lord says, I've, I've declared you to be righteous, now it is time to be what you are. Not just in preparation for the final day, 
but because in this world we will have many troubles. And the Lord calls upon His people to walk with integrity of heart that we might call on Him to deliver us when we have been wronged. And the Bible does not say that on the last day we will be judged by our works. We are judged according to the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. Yet at the same time, Scripture does teach a judgment according to works. Right? You're not saved by your good works. The Scripture testifies elsewhere. You've been saved by grace alone through faith alone, but for a purpose that you might walk in those good works that the Lord Himself has prepared beforehand. Right? Your, your works are a fruit. This is what we've been going through on Sunday mornings, looking at the fruit of the Spirit. It evidences the kind of tree that you are, and Jesus continually uses this image in His earthly ministry. Either the tree bears good fruit or it bears bad fruit. The fruit reveals what the tree is, in fact, rooted in. And if the tree continues to bear bad fruit, it is good for nothing but firewood to be chopped down and discarded. Our work should evidence the Spirit's work in our lives. Integrity matters. And to the righteous, the man who puts his hope and trust in the Lord, it says here in verse 10, the Lord is a shield who saves that man. It saves quite literally the man who is straight of heart. Augustine would continually use this language of man's heart being curved in on itself. Uh, you read C.S. Lewis is out of the silent planet. It speaks of the bent one. Uh, the fact that here are people walking according to crooked paths. But here, the man who puts his hope in the Lord has a heart that is no longer bent. A man whose heart has been made straight under the redeeming work of the Spirit. Holiness matters because God is righteous. And it says here that he looks upon the works of man and he grows and burns with indignation every day because he sees the wickedness all about him. You know, we look at various injustices when we turn on the television or read the newspaper or hear stories from friends, family, and neighbors. And I think we grow indignant at injustices only when they affect us. And then, even then, I think our, we find that our anger that those wrongs fade with the passage of time. I remember being, you know, you think, pick any situation in your past, and for the most part, you've been wronged. You'd be angry for a couple weeks, a couple months perhaps, but time goes and you forget about it. And yet, before the Lord, all time is one everlasting present. The Lord does not forget the Lord continues to burn with indignation against all sin and ungodliness. Because the Lord is holy and righteous, He will not wink at sin. He has established a day when all sins that have not been reckoned with will one day finally be addressed. The Bible tells us that on the day of His choosing, when that happens, the world will come undone. 
for that will be the day of the vindication of the righteous. So David issues this warning beginning in verse 12 against his foes. If a man does not repent, the divine warrior will wet his sword. He will bend back his bow. He will turn his arrows into instruments of death, a fiery death. It's a great and somber warning against David's enemies. And yet at the same time, this is not simply a cry for vindictiveness. Notice the the tenor in David's own prayer, even in his own warning. Note the hope of mercy that is offered here still by David against his enemies. What does he say? If the man does not repent, what is he implying? What would happen were David's enemies to repent? The implication is that there is still time to turn and amend one's ungodly ways and behavior. As we're reminded in Psalm 95, Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, so long as it is still called today. As we heard this morning, so long as you're still breathing, count that as the Lord's salvation and His own patience towards you. The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, patient towards all, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Here, the extension of amnesty is offered to David's foes. David is giving the warning. David says, I'm not taking this judgment into my hands. I have pled this case to the Lord for him to do as he will. And the Lord will act on my behalf, and I don't know when he will do that. So I'm giving you a warning, you my foe, you who have treated me ruthlessly, repent. Because if you do not repent, you have something far more dangerous to face than my own wrath. Because you will be facing the wrath of the living God. a somber warning for each of us that there will come a day for each individual that when that offer of amnesty expires, when the Lord stands and says, enough is enough. If repentance is not sought, the Lord will wet his sword, bend back his bow, and he will strike in judgment. On the day that you breathe your last If your life is one that is found without repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, there will be no other chance. Verses 14 and 15 describes the wickedness of man as a monstrous pregnancy. Evil is conceived in the heart. It gestates and it grows. The man becomes pregnant with mischief and with trouble. He gives birth to slander and to lies. Reminded of the language of James 1.14 on the nature of temptation and sin. Temptation begins implanted in the heart, and if it continues to be cultivated and gives birth to sin, that sin bears forth the fruit of death. To slightly shift the metaphor, David says here, the wicked man digs a grave for the righteous, and he continues to dig and to dig to plan that trap against the righteous man and toss him in. And yet the man gives birth to his own demise. 
The very thing he plans becomes the own instrument of doom. It turns out that the Lord's judgment is to have one's own schemes fall on your own head. This is the Bible's version of Wiley Coyote. Plans everything he can against the roadrunner. And every time the Acme missile falls back upon him. It is the same image that we see in the book of Daniel when Daniel is tossed into the lion's pit. He survives, and the men who had the pit prepared for him are the ones who were tossed in. It's the picture of Mordecai who builds and plans the gallows, scheming for the execution of the Jews, and yet who is the one who is left hanging at the end? It was Mordecai himself. His wickedness falls back on his own head. There he meets his doom. Here we see the triumph of divine justice. The Lord, in bending back his bow, we find the instrument of the Lord's judgment is allowing the wicked to triumph in executing their plans, only in that the object has changed. It is no longer the righteous man who is killed, but it is their own lives, their own heads. Proverbs 26 tells us this, whoever digs a pit will fall into it. The stone will come back upon him who starts rolling it. More pointedly, Paul tells the church of Galatia, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. Or to use the language of Job, if you sow the wind, you will in fact reap the whirlwind. Commenting on this particular section, Calvin puts it like this, Applying this to the church, if we are ever instigated by our own passion to inflict any injury upon a neighbor, let us recall this principle of divine justice, that the man who digs a pit for others fall into it themselves. And so we would do well if we restrain ourselves from doing even the smallest injury to another. Vengeance is mine, Thus says the Lord, it is not our prerogative to execute vengeance when we are wronged. How do you respond to slander? Do you blog about it? Do you begin to tell all of your friends, no, listen what the other person has done? Do you begin to plan your own personal vendetta? To do that would to be one who tries to replace the office of the Lord himself. It's the Lord who says, I alone will judge. It belongs to me. Our duty is to entrust ourselves to one who does all things well. Notice that even as King David does not take upon himself the task of executing vengeance against those who have wronged him. Instead, he entrusts himself to his heavenly Father, in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter tells the church of David's greater son who did the very same thing. Peter writes this, For to this very thing you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in Christ's steps. Christ committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, See, David was innocent in this one matter, 
Christ was innocent throughout the whole course of his entire life. Yet when Christ was reviled, remember when Christ stands before an earthly tribunal of Jew and Gentile alike, of both Herod and Pilate's courts, he is called a sinner, he is called a blasphemer, His foes bring in false witnesses to concoct false stories about Christ. Yet Christ responds, how? Christ did not retaliate. He did not revile in return. He did not meet slander for slander. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He even went so far as to pray, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Even Christ entrusted judgment to the Father to vindicate Him. And we find that Christ Himself was vindicated three days later when He was raised from the dead. Peter says this, the grave could not hold Him because He had done no wrong. Christ's resurrection was, in fact, the vindication of His righteousness. Peter says Christ did this for us, but also to leave us an example of how we are to return in kind when we ourselves are slandered. David was able to plead before the heavenly throne, judge me according to my righteousness in this one instance. But he cannot pray that in every instance. When David sinned, the only thing he could plead was the mercy of God for deliverance, which the Lord provided. But here we see the accent fall in Psalm 7 on this particular thing, that integrity of heart matters. That this prayer is a sober reminder that God loves real righteousness. And so he expects us to walk in righteousness, to walk in an upright heart, And to know that those who walk in upright hearts, the Lord will vindicate them. We can rest confidently that when we are wronged, that does not give us an excuse to retaliate. But rather, we are to entrust the matter to Him who will, in fact, judge the world in righteousness. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for your word that you have given us. We ask that we would follow the footprints of our Savior. That when he was slandered, he did not retaliate. And so we ask that those moments and times when we are slandered, that we would not return with a personal vendetta, but rather that we would examine our own hearts for any wrong that we have done, and that we would entrust the matter to your hands knowing that it is your opinion of us that counts above all things. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.